Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. Did the Confederate diaspora after the war cause American racism? Well, we'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You want to do that if it is June 2023. This podcast is airing June 29th, 2023. And so you've got one day left after today to get 25% off all of my classes at McClanahan Academy because on July 1st, you want to do this, July 1st, the prices go up. So this will be the lowest price you ever see them again. So you want to get that 25% coupon. It's June. Coupon code is June. Very easy. Just use that. Get 25% off every single class, including the bundles. And of course, the bundles are already discounted, so you get an extra discount. This is a great deal for you. So Make sure you hop on over to McClanahanAcademy.com. Buy some classes there. It keeps this podcast free of charge to you, right? It keeps everything going. You can also support the show by going to BrianMcClanahan.com. Click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can go to Spotify for podcasters. Become a member there. You can also click on the shop tab at BrianMcClanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Or buy some of my books at Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. And, of course, comment on YouTube for the algorithm. You can also click on that super thanks button if you're watching on YouTube. Throw a few pennies my way. All right. Well, we're wrapping up this week. And I want you to think about, as I go over this article today, what the difference is between this and Mark Levin, who I talked about on Tuesday. Is there any difference between Mark Levin and Eric Bunn at... um, MSN. I think that's where this one is. Is there any difference between... Uh, l- let me make sure this is... Uh, Eric Bunn is at MSN. Yes. I'm sorry. NBC News is where Eric Bunn is. Not an MSN, but close. NBC News. I want you to think, is there any difference between, between Mark Levin and his interpretation of American history or Curtis Bunn and his interpretation of American history? And if you find that there really isn't much of a difference, or between, say, Mike Bunn and Victor Davis Hanson, or between, say, uh, Mike Bunn and the West Coast Straussians, like Michael Anton, is there really much of a difference between these, or Mike Bunn and Dinesh D'Souza? And if your answer is no, then what are these people that argue for a you know, the, the Republican dominated interpretation of American history. What are these people trying to conserve? And what I mean by that is that when you get in this game of trying to uh, justify or uh, 
you know, you're, you're trying to uh, prop up your party using leftist terms, you've already lost. You've already lost. There's no way you're going to win that. You're playing on their game on their field. If you even buy into this and you try to say, we know the Republicans were the good guys because they were anti-slavery and uh, they were non-racist, which of course is not true. If you buy into that narrative, you've already lost. If you're trying to defend your conservative positions using leftist talking points and narratives, you've already lost. There's no winning that argument. And if you're saying that Abraham Lincoln is somehow a conservative, you've already lost. Because he wasn't. Lincoln was in no way a conservative. Lincoln was in no way a reconciliationist, really. I mean, he said he was at the end of the war, but... It's awful funny. It took you killing a million Americans to somehow say, well, you know, the South is all right. I actually read a, a tweet by Richard Brookheiser today where he said the 1864 Democratic Convention was a mess because George McClellan did not accept the platform, which would have been unquestioned loyalty to the uh, fidelity to the cause of the war. And of course, they, they played Dixie. How dare they play Dixie at the 1864? I mean, it sounds like these 1864 Democrats were more interested in a real union than the 1864 Republicans who were calling themselves unionists. So what is the union then? If you're having to force people to stay in it, what kind of union is that? It's not really a voluntary union. It's a compulsory union. It's not really a voluntary agreement, a compact. It's a compulsory arrangement where you force people to bend to your will and they have to like it. If they don't like it, you kill them. That was Lincoln's position. Look, you have to stay in the Union. Now we don't want to. Well, okay, then you die. I mean, think about that. Where would we say that's acceptable in any other environment but when we're talking about Abraham Lincoln? Imagine if we were talking about a foreign political leader. Imagine if we said, all right, uh, we have Otto von Bismarck, and he's trying to unify Germany. And you have holdout German princes, and they said, we don't want to be part of your of your uh, empire, your German Reich. And he said, okay, well, then you die. We'll say, oh, that's good. That's good. I mean, killing these people was necessary. Necessary for what? Well, then you have to get into, well, it was necessary because we had to end slavery. Did it have to happen that way? Did, it, did we have to kill people for that? I mean, ending slavery is a laudatory thing, but... Did we have to kill people for that? Lincoln was willing to allow it to exist into the 20th century. So clearly he wasn't that concerned about ending it at that point. The South could have continued to have slaves, or any of the states like New Jersey could have continued to have slaves until the early 20th century. Right around the time of World War I is when slavery would have been eradicated in the United States if Abraham Lincoln's proposed amendment in 1862 would have been adopted by the Congress. And he was telling Southerners, look, you can do this, right? I mean, you can come in and vote this thing down. But um, this is the problem with this argument. Where in the world of any other situation will we consider this just? Uh, you're going to be in a union with me, and I don't want that. Well, then you die. You have to be. We're not allowing you not to be. You have no choice. Where is that anywhere seen as American? We've never agreed with that principle. Even Abraham Lincoln didn't agree with that. The people anywhere have a right to uh, throw off any government they choose. Now, Lincoln's position was, well, okay, he has to qualify that. If you win a war, right? I mean, so there has to be a war to settle this. Why? Why did there have to be a war? Did there have to be a war in 1861? 
Did Lincoln have to send in troops? Did Lincoln, I mean, did any of this have to happen? Even at Fort Sumter, which there was a very good uh, article on Fort Sumter this week at Abbey Mill Institute by Clyde Wilson. Even with Fort Sumter, which was, uh, of course, the, the uh, South Carolina uh, military fired on Fort Sumter, but they told the garrison it was going to happen. They all basically, you know, there was no casualties until the second day. No one was killed in the bombardment of Fort Sumter. And everyone sailed to the island. They marched off and went home. Nobody died. It was a symbol. But did, did it have to go to, did Lincoln have to say, all right, we're calling up troops now, we're going to kill you. That's what we're going to do. Why did it have to happen that way? It didn't have to at all. But this is what we often think. So in what other, what other world would this be acceptable except here in the United States? It wouldn't be. And I think that's the real problem with any of this. That when we start talking about, uh, as conservatives, Lincoln is the great uh, voice of conservatism in America. He's entirely not. In fact, uh, his, his version of American history was at odds with most of America. Remember, Lincoln only got 39.6% of the popular vote in 1860. And in 1864, with tremendous voter fraud going on because of the Union Army, he only got 54%. So that means 46% of the North, even during the war, didn't want Lincoln as president. If the South voted in the elections, Lincoln would have lost again. Maybe not in the Electoral College, but certainly in the popular vote. So the majority of Americans didn't want Abraham Lincoln. And by the way, to make this argument that somehow the South, as Curtis Bunn is going to do in this piece, was the origin Ground zero, the, the patient zero, I should say, of all racist attitudes would be to ignore the entire history of the Republican Party and its formation in 1854, 1855. Because the whole point of the Republican Party was to promote free white labor and to exclude blacks. In fact, I mentioned this yesterday, but John Logan, I didn't, I didn't use his name, but John Logan, who has a great big statue in Washington, D.C., he was the Commanding officer of the Grand Army of the Republic, which is the Union version of the, of the Confederate veteran, right? The, the United Confederate Veterans. It was the counterweight, right? So you had these two groups that had veterans in them. Uh, John Logan actually worked to pass some of the most racist legislation you'd ever see in Illinois. And then after the war, he miraculously changes size. Oh, and I was wrong about all that. We got to do all these things. We got we to change size with this. John Logan was trying to lead Southern Illinois out of the Union until that didn't work. And so then he switches sides and becomes an ardent Unionist trying to kill Confederates. I mean, this, this is the real problem with this. Some, something Mark Levin mentioned that I didn't mention on the show, but I did it in my email, but he mentioned Plessy v. Ferguson and how the South, and it was these evil Southerners that created the environment for, for Plessy v. Ferguson. I talked about that you know Jim Crow was born in the North, the, even the term Jim Crow was born in the North. But uh, Plessy v. Ferguson was a nearly unanimous decision, eight to one, and seven of the nine justices were appointed by Republicans. And they were born in New England. The only dissenting voice was a Republican, but he was from Kentucky. So you tell me, how it's all about the ex-Confederates and the South and all these things. 
that this wasn't just something that was there. And the funny part of the, the last part of this essay is just hilarious when it comes to California. You see, because of the term that's used. So I'm going to read this. How ex-Confederates spread racist attitudes far and wide after the Civil War. A new study outlines how white people's migration during and after the Civil War from the Confederate South to the West bolstered white supremacy and institutional racism in non-slave states, helping create the vast racial disparities that exist today nationwide. You see, it's all these evil Confederates that went out West. This ignores, again, the entire history of the West and the Western migration. And I can pull up quote after quote from politicians before the war who were saying some of the most racist things you'd ever hear. Remember, states like Ohio, Indiana, Illinois had exclusionary laws, which meant black, blacks could not even live in those states unless you paid a fine. Couldn't live there. I mean, this is just a preposterous assertion. It's all these Confederates going out and getting involved in government that made all this stuff happen. If it wasn't for those Confederates, you wouldn't have had any of these racial attitudes in the West. None of them. They would have all been happy lands of racial egalitarianism, except we know that that's not the case. We know that in Kansas, for example, where you had one of the worst lynchings ever, uh, it was not ex-Confederates that perpetrated that. Nebraska, same thing. But of course, the Pete states, well, you know, you got all these people that moved, all these Confederates moved to Denver. And you had a lot of uh, Confederates in the Ku Klux Klan in Denver. I'll get into that and how, they, how the percentages are just kind of funny and how these people just dominated everything then. All right. Five researchers from separate colleges collaborated on the study. Oh, yeah. I'm sure these were high-quality researchers without an axe to grind, without a political bone in their body who just wanted to find out uh, what they were going to... They just wanted to come to some, some understanding of how these things are. Yes. Just the, the whole point by saying, we're going to look at Southerners who moved West. And this was why, th why things were racist out there. Called Confederate Diaspora to compile and study census data that tracked the migration to the West of white Americans, including 60,000 former plantation owners. The former Southerners took on local positions of authority like police officers, clergy, and politicians, giving them influence to create a post-Civil War culture that continued to oppress black people even after slavery ended. Like, this stuff wasn't already there. It's absolutely ridiculous. This results in structural and systemic racism in almost every walk of life today. Education, housing, jobs, health care, and wealth, among other areas. That continues to hamper progress for black people, according to a working paper by the National Bureau of Economic, of Economic Research this month. You see, it's all because of these evil Southerners. Now, where is this different from Mark Levin? It would say the exact same thing. Well, if it wasn't for those Confederates and those Democrats, it wasn't for those people, uh, we would have had a happy land of racial egalitarianism. Except Abraham Lincoln himself said in 1858, standing in Illinois, that he didn't believe that there was any equality among races. And this was in Illinois. And it got rousing applause, right? Lincoln had to defend his racist positions in Illinois just to win, hopefully win, the U.S. Senate seat, which he'd lost. 
But that's how he had to try to do it, because that's what Stephen Douglas did. All right, this guy believes in racial equality. No, I don't. No, I don't. You can't do that. Yeah, look, I I don't believe in that. Now, he would say he was anti-slavery, but he doesn't believe in racial equality. Two different things here going on. And that's the majority of the positions and the opinions of people all throughout the United States in the 1850s and 60s and 70s and 80s. This is why John C. Calhoun in 1840 stood up and said the United States is the white man's government. I mean, this was the prevalent attitude. He wasn't, and no one would have disagreed with him in 1840. This was accepted across the United States. Didn't matter if you were Whig, a Democrat, Republican, Democrat, didn't matter. That's what you believed. They may not have believed in slavery. They might have disagreed with Calhoun on slavery. And that was true. There were people that did that, north and south, but we're in the north and the south, true. But the position that the United States was somehow racial egalitarian was never in doubt. That It wasn't. It was never in doubt. No one suggested anything else, really, except for a very small percentage, maybe 10% maximum of New England, which would make it about 1% maximum of the American population. The former Confederates continued to transmit norms to their children and non-Southern neighbors, the researchers wrote, shaping racial inequities in labor, housing, and policing. So you see, these people were so powerful as they got out West. What they did was they told their kids about their racist attitude. Look, that's, I, I can get that. But they were so powerful that all these people in the West fell under their spell. This is like Gregor Rasputin going out west. And he would say things. He would wave his hands and he would bring out a crystal ball and put on a hat. And this is what you need to believe in this community. And then all the people around them magically were transformed into what these former Confederates wanted. These people were so powerful. So powerful. They can make everyone believe what they said. Well, if that's the case, then why didn't they get everybody to believe it before the war? It's only after the war that all these people became susceptible to the very powerful influence of these former Confederates. You see, because they talked to people after the war. And these people didn't believe these things, but now they do because these former Confederates are there. If you believe that narrative, you're as stupid as the person that wrote this article in these papers. The former Confederates, as I said, continue to transmit norms. Researcher Patrick Testa, an assistant professor of economics yeah, at Tulane University in New Orleans, said the impact of the Confederates in other parts of the country was deep and long-standing. So economics professor Patrick Testa thinks that this influence was Deep and long-standing. This is like sociologist. <laughs> uh, sociologist um, writing a history book. I mean, I'm not saying they can't do it. Uh, and it's been done. In fact, one of the most important books for uh, the left, when I say a sociologist writing a history book, 
One of the most important books uh, for the left is Lies My Teacher Told Me by James Lowen, who is a sociologist. You see? So this economics professor has written this book. And this book, or this written this paper, contributed this paper. And this paper is saying these things. Now, Phil Magnus, who has written a, a book on Lincoln and uh, his... Uh, his position on uh, on uh, colonization is often criticized by the left for not being a history professor. He's an economics professor. But yet here, an economics professor can write this and everything's good. So see, these people aren't very consistent. Either you don't think these people can do this or they can. But if you think they can do it, but they only think they can do it when they write something they agree with. Otherwise... Uh, they're, they're worthless. So I haven't looked into Patrick Testa and who he is. I really don't care. <laughs> I really don't care at all. But um, the fact is that he came, he came up with, the, okay, Confederates influenced the West. Let's prove it. That, I'm sure, was his thesis. Confederates influenced the West. Let's prove it. Because you see, this is how history now works. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was not a racist. I'm going to prove it. And they go out and they try to dig up something that does this. It doesn't even logically make sense what these people are arguing. In the three decades following the Civil War, white Southerners were more likely than other white people to take on work and governance, he said. And former slaveholders were even more likely to assume these positions, he said. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that uh, you know these people were just accepted with open arms all throughout the West, and these people were just going to go out there, and they were just going to be very prominent people, and they're going to work in governance. So, what we ultimately show ultimately is that these migrants, Testa said, through these governance channels and channels of public-facing authority, these governance channels. What the heck does it even mean? These governance channels. Um. What is that? And channels a public-facing authority. <laughs> Governance channels and, and channels of public-facing authority. What the hell that means? This is just how stupid this stuff is. Help lay the groundwork for these types of symbols and racial norms and a broad-based Confederate nostalgia to really take off at a national level by the early 20th century. So see, it wasn't the UDC that we've always heard about. It was actually these former Confederates going and living in the West that laid the groundwork for this. One of those norms was the institution of the Ku Klux Klan and the racial terror inflicted in many parts of the country. In the report, the researchers identify overrepresentation of first and second generation migrants in the KKK. Adding that the second generation of the KKK established in 1915 helped to rejuvenate in mainstream Confederate culture. So, uh, overrepresentation of first and second generation. So, it wasn't just these Confederates, it was their kids. You see, their kids were a problem. But again, it makes you wonder uh, how that is any different from the racial positions that were held by other people around them. It was all because they had influence over all these people. Those born in the South were 11% more likely to belong to the KKK in the Denver metropolitan area, for example, a major hub of Klan activity in the 1920s beyond the South, the report said. 
Those born in the South were 11% more likely to belong to the KKK. Well, how do they know that? First of all, and 11%? 11%. You know you can get 11%? Think about it. Think about how many people is 11%. (laughs) 11% or what percent? I mean, it's minuscule. Minuscule. 11%. So if they had 10 people and, you know, you had uh, a couple of people that were born in the South, this, this is what you're getting into, right? Uh, well, that's 11% more likely. Mm. 11% more likely. This is a really bad, really bad paper. And uh, it, it just doesn't even make any sense. The harmful legacies of slavery persist beyond those that experience being slaves, but across generations and across places, Testa said. Along with census data, the group of researchers analyzed KKK membership records of second-generation Confederate migrants who were born outside the South but maintained slavery-era norms. So the census data, they're looking at that, and you get these others. And then you had the people born outside the South, but they maintained slavery-era norms. Like, again, the fact that uh, this stuff wasn't already there. And we know it was. Because we know places like Oregon and California had these kind of, if you go just to the West, they had these kind of laws before these Confederates even showed up. But the paper addresses that in a very funny way. And I want to talk about that in a second. This suggests, Testa said, the passing down of racial animus from generation to generation may have been, quote, an important vehicle for sustained diaspora influence long after the initial Confederate migrants had passed. Yeah. So it's all because of these guys that go out there and they just, I mean, it's just passed down and these people have so much influence among their community and these people just become so important. They're just passing this on. Nobody thought this way till these people showed up. Except they did. And that's uh, where the paper says that, which is it's funny. As the California Reparations Task Force is set to hand over its recommendations to the state's legislature next week, this new study crystallizes how states that did not legally allow slavery, like California, still contributed mightily to oppressing black people. Some detractors of reparations have argued that California was not a slave state and therefore it should not offer reparations. But the latter part of the 19th century became the home of numerous former Southerners and was populated by so many Confederate-aligned citizens that it supported John C. Breckinridge in the 1860 presidential election. So, you see, these were Confederate-aligned citizens. Notice the date. California voted for Breckinridge in 1860. These weren't former Confederates. These were Confederate-aligned citizens. So that position blows apart their entire narrative. Because, you see, it was the diaspora that brought these racist attitudes to California. That, I mean, these people... You think about logically what they're arguing here. The diaspora, all these people got in government, and they transmitted all of this stuff to the West. Wasn't there beforehand. Yet, in 1860, there were confederate line people, and California votes for Breckenridge. So, if they're bringing it with them then how does California vote for Breckenridge? Hmm, that's a head-scratcher. 
That's a real head scratcher. I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, they're Confederate aligned, I guess. Now, Levin would say, ah, they're Democrats. See, they're Democrats out there. Republicans didn't think this stuff. Of course, they did. I mean, the only book that Eric Foner ever wrote that's good is his Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, which uh, Genovese had a pretty heavy hand in. But he talks about this. It was all there already. Nobody had to bring it to him. It was already there. These people just fit in. These people were Republicans. Uh, So I'm not sure how the diaspora affected California in 1860, but those were Confederate-aligned citizens. What the hell does that even mean either? What is a Confederate-aligned citizen? Somebody that votes Democrat in 1860? Southern Democrat? What, What is that? Breckenridge advocated for the expansion of slavery and supported the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law, which required the return of an enslaved person to a plantation even if he was found in a free state. Well, um, that's because that's in the Constitution at this time. (laughs) That was part of the Constitution. So, look, this is really bad history. It's just as bad as Mark Levin. The two are in line with each other. Bad history. And if we're going to have bad history on top of bad history, and if your bad history, like Mark Levin's, is based on this stupid bad history from the left, you've already lost. You've already lost. It's important to look beyond the South, even places like California, Tessa said, and look for ways such as reparations to heal these divisions, to heal the socioeconomic gaps. Yeah, it's all about healing, isn't it? That's what this stuff is about. It's all about healing. Because many parts of California favored Breckenridge, it became a popular destination for Southerners at the time. Outside of the South, California is maybe the most intense in terms of a cultural index that indicates how it accepted racism, Tessa said. Uh, So, the racism was already there, but then California became a destination for it, and they were able to, to do it because it was already there. But the point of the paper, let me go back, is that... The diaspora uh, was was spreading this stuff. Now he does use the word bolstered, bolstered white supremacy. So, but the white supremacy was already there. Um, so, how did that how did that do anything? I mean, this is the question. Because many parts, I get that. Studying the spread of former Confederates was important, Tessa said, because it provides clear data on how the ills of slavery and the Confederate ideology spread across America. But wait a second. Um, Confederate, if, if this was already in California, how is it Confederate ideology? Because it's, it's, I guess, Confederate aligned. What does it actually mean? You see, they can't define this stuff. Um... And Bunn doesn't even... The the piece is contradictory. The piece is contradictory. The entire paper is contradictory, and it's all stupid. So, um, I I find this stuff fascinating when you compare what Mark Levin does. He would say, well, yeah, this is all Democrats. These are all Democrats. California is controlled by Democrats. It's all Democrats. 
The Democrats are still the evil party. The Democrats are still the racist party, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This, would, this would buttress his position that the Republicans were just all the good guys. But when you look at the history of the Republican Party, you come away with something entirely different when it comes to the issue of race. In fact, what you find is that Americans in the 19th century were racist people. Uh, that's just the way it was. And so we're not that way now, but that's the way it was in the 19th century. And to pin it on one group or another or one political party or another is just to be so short-sighted and so ahistorical that it's laughable on its face. All right. So I had to cover this, um, but again, if you don't want this kind of stuff, then you need to take McClanahan Academy. You need to take uh, my classes there. And um, hop on over. June, use the coupon code June. If it's June 2023, use the coupon code June. Get 25% off all the classes. Uh, even when the price goes up, uh, you, it's, it's, it's gone. This deal is gone. So you get all the you get lowest price now guaranteed that you're ever going to see it again, even on the bundles and everything else. Use the coupon code JUNE. I'll see you next week on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.